Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Solomon Nelson, Solomon Rees, and it's my uh, absolute pleasure to, to bring God's word to you this morning. The title of my sermon today comes from a movie that I watched a few years back. Uh, it's called The Lust, of, Lust for Life. Um, this movie is it's a kind of a documentary on Van Gogh, uh, one of those uh, brilliant painters. And the entire movie, like the title was arresting, but if you watch the movie, there is nothing good happening. And even though we know that he's a, a very successful and and one of the, the best uh, all-time greats. Uh, the whole movie talks about, kind of a biopic, talks about the struggle that goes through uh, in, a, in an artist's life. And that is true of any creative writing, uh, anything creative work. Um, we only see the finished product. We only see the success. We only see um, how famous they become. But then the effort that goes behind it, um, the hard work, the struggle, the sleepless nights, the tears, the pain, and that is hidden from the eyes of the public. And this movie takes us behind the scenes and then shows us the man, the real man, the real struggle behind the success story. So this title kind of stuck with me, Lust for Life. And, uh, and very often we associate lust with, uh, in, in a negative connotation. We only see that in a negative connotation. But then uh, if you look at a dictionary definition for this word, lust for life, it's a phrase that became very popular probably right after the movie came out. And if you just Google this, this phrase, and this is what it says, the definition is, an intense eagerness to experience all that life has to offer. An intense eagerness to experience all that life has to offer. It sounds brilliant. Who doesn't want to have this? Intense eagerness to experience all that life has to offer, nothing short of it. We all want the best life, the best that we can imagine. All the good things, the happily ever after life that we so often see in movies, especially Hallmark movies. The full life, who doesn't dream such a life? And if you were to close your eyes and then dream your version of a successful life, how would that be? What will be your dream life like? The best life. I tried doing it. I saw some beaches, some mountains, you know, you hardly have people in it. <laughs> but the, the answer, the answer is always different, depending on the person, the individuals, the circumstances, uh, different phases of life that we are in. Our, our answer will, will change. And, uh, but then it also comes down to really what do you want in life? What is the most essential thing in life? that would define your life, that would make your life worth it, worth all the trouble, that will give you the ultimate meaning for our existence, the short existence that we you know, have in, in, in this world. What would that be? 
One of the earliest plays in English uh, drama is by Christopher Marlowe. He was a contemporary, probably the predecessor of uh, Shakespeare. When Shakespeare was just coming onto the scene, he was already an established uh, playwright. And he had um, uh, established himself and everybody looked up to him, Christopher Marlowe. And there is even a theory that Shakespeare plagiarized many of his plays. And one of Christopher Marlowe's famous uh, tragedy is Chris, uh, Dr. Faustus. Uh, Dr. Faustus is a medical doctor, and, uh, and he, you know, he's just setting out to practice, and he, I don't want to ruin it for you, but then the play talks about a deal that he signs with the devil, Mephistopheles. And the deal is this, you give me fame, you give me success, I'll, I will sell my soul at the end of 20 years. So for the next 20 years, I want to be successful and famous. And then at the end of 20 years, you can take my life. That's the, it's a dangerous deal, but then that's what he signed up for. And the devil, the Mephistopheles, um, said, okay, it sounds great. And the deal was struck. And for the next 20 years, Dr. Foster's enjoyed immense success. Whatever he touched, prospered. He made a lot of money. He became very famous and, and popular as well. But then the clock was ticking. At the end of 20 years, uh, it soon rolled on, and then um, the devil came knocking on the doors. Dr. Foster, remember me? Remember the deal that we struck? Today is the day. Tonight, when the clock strikes 12, I'm going to come for you, and you're coming with me. Who wants to die? Dr. Foster is crying. He's in tears. He's begging for mercy. But then the devil says no. A deal is a deal. I'm going to come for you tonight. Get ready. The whole day, Dr. Foster is crying, and then in the middle of the night, uh, the devil comes, Mephistopheles comes knocking on the door. Dr. Foster is still in tears, crying. And then he says, at least grant me this one wish before I die. A dying man's wish. This one wish will fulfill you know, my life. And uh, the devil merciful, at least in the play. And he says, I will grant you a wish, name it. And Dr. Foster says, I want to see Helen. I want to see Helen one more time, just once before I die. And that will make all the pain go away. And that will make my life worth it. Now, who is this Helen? Now, if you watch the movie Troy, another great movie, um, Brad Pitt stars in that. Um, uh, so that movie is based on Helen. You know, you can see the, the Trojans and the Spartans fighting for this one woman, Helen. It's, a, it's kind of, um, she, she was the Miss World, let's put it that way. The most beautiful, legendary beauty. And two cities, two, two great kingdoms went to war for this woman. That's what Helen is. That's who Helen is. And Dr. Foster says, let me see Helen before I die, and that will make my life worth it. And then Mephistopheles grants his wish. Now Dr. Foster's in his living room. He sees an apparition, a kind of a ghost, a kind of a vision of Helen in his bedroom walls. And this is what he says. He sees Helen and he says, Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Oh, sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships? Thousand ships were at war for this face. That's how beautiful she was. 
Entire cities were burned down for this lady. Oh, sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Just one kiss, that'll make me immortal. My pain go away, make my life worth it. The one thing that will define our lives. Again, this answer will be different for individuals. You and I may not have a big fascination for Helen. Right? We don't know who that person is. We don't care. But, but the answer is different, not just individually, but also culturally. We all have different answers. This answer will change. I love this quote. And when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds left to conquer. This is a famous line from one of the modern Christmas classics, Die Hard. <laughs> At least some people believe. Uh, it's by Hans. He, he says this, I don't know how, how true it is. Maybe Jason can tell us. Maybe it's not true. But, you know, you, you get the point. For him, it was all about conquering and power and kingdom, you know, his, his rule. Um, people sac there were times in cultures where people sacrificed their kids for the sake of stability, for the sake of prosperity. We have child sacrifice across cultures. They sacrificed, they threw their babies into a pouring fire. It's kind of a bonfire. Everybody gathered around and they did this for the sake of security, for the sake of stability, prosperity. They find favor with their gods. Different cultures have different priorities. There are times and cultures where people valued honor, family name, prestige, above everything else. I've heard stories where parents kill their children just to restore their dignity, their family's name and honor in their community. Ancient culture, they were obsessed with knowledge. Everything came down to knowledge and learning. They spent their entire life in monasteries, not religious, but for pursuit of knowledge. In today's culture, we value money and freedom and pleasures, all good stuff. We need them in life. Once Rockefeller, um, the oil tycoon, um, the billionaire, he was asked in an interview, how much money is enough? And his reply was, just a little more. It's a brilliant answer. Just a little more. Who doesn't want a little more? Especially in today's world, we just want a little more. All good things, but we don't define our lives based on this. So how do we define success? Do we really know how we define success? We talk about success, but what is success to us? When we say success, when we say successful people, who comes to your mind? That could be a clue to how you define success. If you want to go a little deeper, then think about this. What kind of life do you dream for your kids? Because every parent has a dream, at least must have thought it once. What do you want for your kids? And that is success. What do we want in life? What will bring ultimate happiness and satisfaction and significance to our lives? 
do we really know the answer? It is not a philosophical question, it's just an existential question that we all have to come to face with uh, once in a time. I mean, sometime in our lives, we are faced with the reality. One of the Beatles songs, um, Nowhere Man, uh, they were extremely popular in the 60s and 70s, best-selling music act of all time. And this is a lyric, or uh, first stanza from the song Nowhere Man. It goes like this. He is a real nowhere man. The 70s once again talks about the postmodern culture that was setting in in Europe and the loss of meaning, the loss of identity and, you know, rootlessness and, you know, uh, all kinds of things. And this it kind of talks about that. He is a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody, doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Nowhere man, please listen. You don't know what you're missing. Nowhere man, the world is at your command. He is as blind as he can be, just sees what he wants to see. Nowhere man, can you see me at all? Nowhere man, don't worry. Take your time, don't hurry. Leave it all till somebody else lends you a hand. Till we die, we never know what we want. We never know where we are going talks about the impotency of man, the limits of human achievement, always busy but accomplish nothing, always studying but learning nothing. We all want the best in life. We all want to live a life of significance. At least that's how we start our lives. We all have this goal at one time you know, in our lives. But look where we are. As individuals, as families, as society, as a culture, We were made by God, we know, all the, you know, we know the answer, we were made by God, for God. And we were made to enjoy Him and delight in Him, to truly live by knowing Him and loving Him. That's our design, that's our template. And then sin comes along and distorts this paradigm, distort, distorts this equation. And instead of God, instead of finding pleasure in God, we try to fill in with everything else that we find. It corrupts our desires and affections. We try to cram our life with everything we find just to satisfy this need, this craving. But they only leave us searching for more, searching for better, searching something different all the time. So we pass on, for the, the, pass on the real for the imagined, the eternal for the temporal. Now I heard somebody say this, most of us suffer from the Columbus Syndrome. Columbus Syndrome, you know, the Christopher Columbus, a great man. When he set off, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. When he got back, he didn't know where he had been. <laughs> great life, great achievement. We are clueless in life till the end, always traveling but never arriving. We think we know the answer. We think we know the answer. We think we know the way. We think we have everything. We think we can do it. But the reality is we are lost. It is so easy to so internalize the materialistic worldview of life. I have a decent job. 
you know, I have a, I make enough money, you know, I have enough savings, my portfolio is healthy. I have a decent home, my kids have turned out better, at least than the neighbor's kids. My health is you know, not so bad. What more do I want? I want to thank God for my blessings. It's very, even, very easy to fall into this trap. Defining life through the lens of materialism. Defining success and God's blessing through the lens of materialism. Remember what the Lord said to the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 20 to 21. The man was successful, was prosperous, a bounty. He had enough you know, crops and harvest, not just for today, not for just for this year, for next year, for years to come. But this is what the Lord said in verse 20. It says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Possession, possessions, things that we have are nothing but traveling luggage of time, says John Stott. The things that we have, they are just traveling luggage of time. We will have to put it down at the mouth of grave. We cannot define life, the significance of life based on what we have or what we don't have in life. Most of our days, most of our years, most of our lives are filled with what I call situational nothings. Has zero value for eternal perspective. Just running errands all the time. Cutting grass and maintaining my lawn and yard. I hate that. <laughs> But necessary evil. Our life is full of it. This is what we are used to do because this is what the world expects from us. Situational nothing. Again, I heard somebody say this. We need insight, we need foresight, and we need oversight. We need insight into what we do the right have the right perspective on things on life on life we need foresight the significance of what we do what we are trying to accomplish what really matters in life and above all we need for oversight all the time because it is so easy to to go astray We're going to get to that in a minute. Someone, we need someone always to keep us in check. And only God can do all these three who can give us insight, give us the right perspective of real significance, who can also help us to stay on track, to accomplish what he wants us to do that really matters in life. John 10.10, 10. Jesus makes this this claim, if you read 
John chapter 10, again and again, there are different uh, ways in which Jesus affirms this idea that he is the way, that he is the source of all life, that if you want life, if you want a full and abundant life, there is no other way but him. He uses different imagery, different you know, symbols there. I'm a shepherd, I'm a door. But it all comes down to this idea that he is life. If you want life, you've got to come to me. Without which, there is no life. How do you find life when you have denied the giver of life? That's the biggest irony that we have in today's world. We don't want the giver of life, but we want life. We lust for life without the, the source of life. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He juxtaposes two things here, death and life, destruction and abundant life. The thief and the shepherd here. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. There is death, there is destruction. But I, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I cannot say it more plainly. You love life, love Jesus. That's the only way. But why is it so difficult? Of course, it is not so easy because we live in this world. It's a fallen world. We have the forces of the darkness working against us always trying to scheme, always trying to trip us down. He's a thief, he's a liar. He's out to steal, he's in his own lying ways. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, that's the, the devil, the darkness, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and what he has to offer. Our eyes are blinded. The God of this world has blinded us to see the truth. The gospel that lights up our way, that leads us to this life. It's darkened. I was talking to one of my, a guy who came to my house to help me with, with, with some things. We ended up talking about God and religion, and he said, like, I grew up in a religious home, but I don't go to church anymore. I, I know there is something in God. I know there is something in religion. I told him, there is not something. It, it's everything. It is not something that you just add on. Everything depends on what we believe. Everything depends on, on God. Be good, do good, and good things will come to you. That's another philosophy. Be the best version that you can be. And good things will follow you. Have positive energy, positive thoughts. Things will work out. They also say the universe has a way of working itself out. Don't worry. Everything will work itself out in the end. Or there might be some pessimists. They might believe Murphy's Law. 
what will go wrong or what can go wrong will go wrong. It doesn't matter what you do, things will go wrong. Just live your life. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3, another verse that says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It is so easy to go astray in our thoughts. Because the serpent, the evil forces are cunning to trip us, the deceptions of life, the deceptions of this world. And it is so easy to get internalized or internalize those things in our lives. But what really comes down to this is this, our proclivity for evil, it cannot be overstated. There is always this tendency in us to cut corners, to choose the easy way out, to go after the forbidden pleasures of life, always test the limits of morality, always push the boundaries of sin, amuse ourselves every time the status quo is challenged. The rebellious heart. We don't do this because we don't know better. We do this because we can. And education doesn't make us better. It only makes us crafty. The enemy is a thief. He's out to destroy us. He's out to steal. His agenda is to steal what you have. Steal our lives, our youth, our strength, our talents. The goals that we, God-given goals, he's out to destroy that. He brings ruin upon lives. Destroys all the good in us. Destroys the God-given potential. John Stott in Basic Christianity puts it this way. Much that we take for granted in a civilized society is actually based upon the assumption of human sin. Nearly all legislation has grown up because we simply cannot be trusted to settle our disputes with justice and without self-interest. And that's why we have legislation. Because we cannot do it on our own. We want somebody to enforce these things on us, to hold us accountable. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. Now we are talking about laws to police the police. All this is due to our sin. We cannot trust each other. We need protection from each other against one another. It is a terrible indication of what human nature is really like. It's all around us. So the first step and the essential step is to acknowledge that we are lost and that we are unable you know, to, to do the right thing. That we are blind, that we are evil, that we are naked and weak, and that we are lost. We don't know what we are doing, we don't know where we are going, and we don't know what we really want in life. That'll give us significance. The evil is in here more than is out there. One of the cultural lies of our age is this. You must have heard this. When life gives you lemons, 
you make lemonade. It's pretty clever. But I want to go to the behind that phrase, go deeper into that phrase. I know there is a positive spin to it. But what does it say? There is no design. You are in control of your life. You just wing it. Whatever happens, happens. Improvise, adapt. Have a positive outlook. Use all the bad experiences and make something good out of it. Be enterprising, you can do it. One of the postmodern terms or or, or ideas that that can be seen in in many um, disciplines, including art and psychology and sociology, anthropology, uh, comes from a philosophical assumption or philosophical term called bricolage. It's a French term. And a lot of French thinkers have used this, and you can can define the postmodern culture based on this. Now, what is bricolage? Bricolage simply means it is the best one can do with what is available. It's a mishmash of things. You improvise, you adapt as you go along. I want a wall art. I just make one with what I have. This is diametrically opposed to an engineer who designs, who meticulously plans and prepares and collects, spends time working at its craft, and finally sees the output. Bricolage is is on the spur, improvisation. And in creative studies, they use it in a positive thing. That's how you do. You know, you've got to be smart, you've got to be... Uh, quick to think and adapt and change and you know so it's 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 a good thing to have in life and that's how the spin is but if you look at the whole philosophy behind it there is no design don't believe in the ultimate blueprint of life it's what you you make of life there is no ultimate purpose there is no ultimate design there is no ultimate meaning in life you just find one you just make one you know along the way But we know we are unique. We have a design we have, because we know we have, there's a designer. There is a creator behind the creation. We are made to worship each one of us with unique talents and possibilities. We've got a design, a unique calling in life. And the beauty is not only how the individual part shapes up, but also how we as individuals fit in into the big tapestry of what God is doing in this, life, in, in this world and in eternity. And that is lost. Jesus says, I am the door, the door, the only way. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved saved life you find life and he will go in and out and find pasture abundant life be filled be satisfied we don't add Jesus to our list of things I know I want three things in life and then I add Jesus to the list and that's how I may I I Christianize the list 
No. Jesus is our list. He is number one, number two, number three. He is all. That's the difference. What is this abundant life that Jesus talks about? Before we define it, we ought to define what it is not. I know there is a temptation to, to dilute this to material blessings, to peace, to prosperity, to health, to riches, to comfort, to pleasures. Just want to go back to the early Christians, even the disciples of Jesus. When they became Christians in those early days, it meant death, it meant prison, it meant persecution. They were ostracized, their property were, was confiscated. They were beaten, forsaken, driven out. Did they have abundant life? You bet. Every one of them. If so, what is this abundant life? It is definitely more than all these comforts and riches and pleasures of this world. It is something eternal. It is more than our bank account and investment portfolio. It is more than holidaying in Spain. Don't, don't get me wrong. Those are all blessings that God gives graciously according to his riches. But we don't define our life, define abundant life based on these things. One of the oldest hymns, one of the oldest hymns in hymnology is a hymn that we all sing, Be Thou My Vision. And this, this hymn was based on an old Irish poem. And legend says this, this hymn was written sometime in the 6th, 7, or 6th to 8th century AD. That's how old this song is. And I uh, just want to read a couple of, version, uh, couple of verses here. Be thou my vision. Um, Be thou my vision, O Lord, my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou, art, thou my great father, I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. We have come a long way from the time in which this song was written. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Let everything be nothing to me, save thy presence. And that is deep. We don't add Jesus to our list. We deny everything for the sake of the gospel. And that's what the gospel meant for those Christians. You alone, you are my best thought, waking or sleeping. You are my inheritance, you are my treasure. In the book of Bible, uh, we have uh, the Psalms, book of Psalms, written by David and many other um, 
psalmist poets. And of course, David was called you know, a man after God's own heart. And we know who David was. He was the king of Israel, probably the most successful king. Um, he left a lasting legacy. And uh, if you read the book of Psalms, you will see in again and again there is this, this theme that is repeating. Uh, it, it, he repeats this over and over again. Um, you can, I'll just read a couple of things here and there. Uh, Psalm 84, verse 10. Psalm 84, verse 10 says this, For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now imagine, now he's a king. He's got a kingdom, he's got a palace, he's got responsibilities, he's got family, he's got kids. He's got riches, he's got fame and popularity and prosperity. But then look at what he says. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. You know, when, it, when you write poetry, um, you always exaggerate. Um, that's why people say poets are liars, you know. Uh, they always exaggerate stuff. Uh, they're never literal, because literal is boring. You, you always say, that, you know, you are the best, and you know, this is the most exciting. So every time you use superlative, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's poetic, it's poetic. And so Psalms can be called poetry, but then when you come across references like this, these are not exaggerations. I mean, because he's repeating this again and again. Psalm 27, Psalm 27, verse 4. David says, one thing I have desired of the Lord. I just need one thing in life. That will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The same idea. I don't need anything in life. I just want to be in the presence of the Lord. Dwell in the house of the Lord. Be a doorkeeper in the temple of the Lord. And that, just one day is better than a thousand elsewhere. And then he says, all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You can see this idea getting repeated again and again in, 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 in Psalms. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. He makes a distinction between a temple and synagogue. Uh, and if you look at the history of synagogue, um, sorry, temple, the temple that was built in Jerusalem by Solomon, David's son, of course conceived by David and then executed by his son Solomon. The temple replaced the tabernacle of the Old Testament that God commanded Moses to build one in the wilderness. Because the tabernacle was uh, a tangible evidence of God's presence in the midst of the camp. So wherever the Israelites went in the wilderness, they carried the tabernacle that was built with specific in a measurement. God-given instructions. When David comes along, he says, like, I want to build a house for the Lord. So the tabernacle went inside the temple. Of course, what, inside, what was inside the tabernacle went inside the temple. So the temple at Jerusalem was unique. It was no other, there, there were no other structures like the temple, not just in structurally speaking, but also it, in functionally. 
the synagogue is just a meeting place. It's a gathering place where the Jews gathered around to read scriptures and pray and instruct each other. But the temple is where the sacrifice happened. And God wanted the people of Israel to go there three times. And the sacrifice happened the Day of Atonement. And that was unique, a unique experience for those Israelites that they cannot have anywhere else, not in the synagogues. So when C.S. Lewis talks about this, says when David talks about this beauty of the Lord, when David talks about to be in the temple of the Lord, that's what he means. He wants to be in the temple where worship takes place, where the presence of the Lord is there tangibly. He's able to experience God in a much more powerful way than in a synagogue. Today, you and I, we don't go to a temple for this, race, for this reason. We are the temple. We have the presence of God. We have the access of, to the presence of God. We worship God in our bodies, through our bodies. Look at David. When he says, I, I love this, to see the beauty of the Lord, to be in the temple. Just look at how much David knew about the cross. I know there are some prophecies. God gave him some revelations about Jesus. The messianic prophecies are there in Psalms. But how much did David really knew about the cross, the love of the cross, the gift of salvation, the hope of eternal life? Because that's the centrality of Christianity. You and I know those things. How much more should we enjoy the presence of the Lord? Enjoy worshiping God. Increase in our love for God than David and those poets who had very little knowledge of cross, of salvation, and the hope that is there in Christ Jesus. And yet, how often we are indifferent to this love, to this message, to this gospel, that we are blinded, that we are distracted by the enemy, that we go after the temporal, that we forsake the real, Abundant life. I know there are books on abundant life. That's a, that's, that's a rich concept. But you can talk about so much about abundant life. But if you want to define it in a layman's term, what is abundant life? Abundant life is life with God, life in God, and life for God. You have to have God there because He is the one the infinite God who gives everything in abundance. Everything that comes with God is abundant life. The comfort of his love, the enduring mercies of God, the gift of his grace, the overflowing goodness and favor that we enjoy at his hands, the glorious hands, this right hand that shields us, the wisdom that instructs us, the help that we find in time of need, the wonder of his presence, the hope of eternal life, his never-failing promises, 
the list goes on. We can still talk about his truth and righteousness, his word, his power, the joy and peace that it gives, the glory of his presence, his abundant life. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything I need in life, the pleasure, what delights my heart is found in you. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The universe don't work itself out, but the Lord of the universe will work it out for you. Francis Thompson, one of the British poet, one of the, you know, uh, the best poems that you'll find is The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven. Now, if you read the, the life of Francis Tom, Thompson, he was born in a, a wealthy home. He was born, you know, uh, his dad was a medical doctor in England, a very successful uh, a person. He was born into riches. But then this guy uh, went wayward in his life, uh, indulged in drugs and promiscuity and uh, he had mental illness and ultimately found, he was a school dropout, and ultimately found himself homeless. He was sleeping on the streets. And uh, his biographer says that uh, he was sheltered. One of the prostitutes in the streets of London took him to her home and fed him uh, with what she had. That's how miserable his, his condition became. But then later on, he came to his senses and um, uh, somebody, you know, uh, of course God was involved in his life and he found favor with somebody who took him in and uh, um, he, when his senses came back, he wrote this poem, The Hound of Heaven. I just want to read a couple, it's a long poem, maybe you can go home and read that, that poem. Uh, i just read a couple of uh, verses for you. Uh, where Francis Thompson says, you can see how autobiographical it is, talks about he or his relationship with God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrays me. You betray me, everything else will be, is gonna betray you. And then he says, naked I wait thy love's uplifted stroke my harness piece by piece thou hast hewn, me, hewn from me and smitten me to my knee. I am defenseless utterly. I slept, I think, and woke, and slowly gazing, find me stripped in sleep. In the rash, lusty head of my young powers, I shook the pillaring hours and pulled my life upon me, grimed with smears. I stand amid the dust of the mounded years, my mangled youth, lies dead beneath the heap. My days have crackled and gone up in smoke, have puffed and burst as sun starts on a stream. 
It's a wasted life. My mangled youth, full of potential, lies in a heap. My days have crackled and gone up in smoke because I fled from you. The enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. Wasted years, wasted talent. But the story doesn't stop there. His love for us is relentless. When Jesus talks about the shepherd, the idea of a shepherd, he also goes on to talk about how this one shepherd goes after this lost sheep. He doesn't give up on this lost sheep. That is not the end for the lost sheep. It's wasted years. It's caught in the, you know, in the, the bush of thorns. It's crying for help. But that's not, there, that's not where the story ends. It is just the beginning of our Savior's love. He goes after us. His mercy that endures forever. The hand of God upon our lives all along. His goodness that provides everything for us more than we deserve. And he pursues us, the hound of heaven. He comes after us with a fierce love. And he is the good shepherd that leaves behind the 99 sheep and comes after this one sheep. And he leaves no stone unturned until he finds that sheep and brings him home, carrying him on his shoulder because he can't walk, because he's wounded and hurt. The picture of God coming in search of the lost man is a recurring theme in the Gospels. The love of God that goes after the sinners. Again and again we see this idea of God going after the sinners, the lost. And this is also the recurring theme in our lives. How easily we go astray in our hearts. How easily we rebel against this great God wander away from the path of righteousness, how often we lust after greener pastures that is always on the other side of the fence, even while we know that it will take us away from the loving presence of our Savior. And how often we have some cl come close to death and destruction. Just one more step, one more move, one more action. I would have destroyed everything about me. Maybe some of us found ourselves in that pit of despair, pit of destruction. There is no coming back. There's nothing else to do. I've hit rock bottom in life. It cannot get any worse. But if there is any hope, any consolation, any healing at all, it can only be found in Christ Jesus. The good shepherd that doesn't give up on us. The good shepherd who laid his life for us so that we can be redeemed. He is relentless and no one can stop him either. Praise God. What a savior we have. Lustful life. You and I cannot do this alone. We cannot do this by our strength. 
We simply don't have the resources, the wisdom, the strength, the will, nor the power, the ability to go through this journey of life. Just have to surrender to him. Like a little child who trusts her dad, let trust her heavenly father. He's the only one who can turn our life around. He's the only one who can break our chains, who can deliver us, and who can bring us home. I don't know what you're struggling here today, um, but we need to press on. The master is not finished with us. He's not finished with us. He's still working on us. He doesn't give up on us that easily. And he will not stop until we br he brings us home. He is a master craftsman, and we are his masterpiece. There is a design. There is a purpose. We don't have to make lemonade. Just got to surrender to his will, to his guidance, to the skill of his hand, that he will ultimately bring beauty, that he will bring hope. And if you are on the fence, not being able to commit fully to God, I want to encourage you to, to consider the call of the shepherd. He is the giver of life. There is no life without the giver of life. I encourage you to pray that, pray and you know, ask God to speak to you. Find Him in His words. If you have questions, find somebody. Ask questions, talk. Someone you trust. Because this is a matter of life and death. We cannot take it easily. Our entire life depends on it. Our entire eternity depends on this. We don't add Jesus to our list. It's not like there is something in God, in religion, in, you know, in Christ. It's everything. And if you are a child of God, my prayer is that we will develop an appetite for God that will hunger and thirst for God, that we will have the eyes, just like David, to see his wondrous beauty, to have the heart that delights in his presence, that longs for his presence, to be in his presence. Prayer and devotion is not just a thing to do. It's not a Christian obligation, but something that we will enjoy, that we will enjoy to worship him, our life will become an act of worship. That our life will actually you know, be an act of worship. Abundant life. I came to give you life. Life in abundance. Doesn't matter how long we've been doing this. Nobody can say, I've been there, I've done that. We can never get tired of God. No one can exhaust him in any way. Pray that we will grow and be established in him, in his abundant life. A life that is lived with him. There is more. There is more to know, more to enjoy him. 
more of him in our lives more of his gifts more of his blessings a life that is lived with him in him and for him and for his glory let's pray heavenly father we want to thank you so much for being our shepherd lord lord for being the giver of life there is no hope there is no other hope lord besides you lord we trust you lord we thank you for the call thank you for coming after us thank you for your love that pursues us lord relentlessly lord thank you for not giving up on us oh father lord we want to we want to say that lord we belong to you lord father we we are the sheep of your flock and you are our good shepherd and we are so grateful to you in our presence lord lord if there is anyone here struggling lord i pray that that you will give them the grace of oh, father to know you that you would open their eyes lord to know you and find you lord and accept you as their savior oh father and respond to your call lord if there is anyone here struggling father i pray that lord your grace will be with them this morning that they will lord enjoy you more than anything else oh father that, that you will strengthen them oh father and they'll give them peace oh father give us your grace and mercy dear lord help us to enjoy this life lord and not to get distracted not to get deceived by this enemy of oh father who is a thief who is out to steal what you have given us oh father lord if there is anyone lord who is grieving lord who is anxious lord that they have destroyed their lives oh father that who is regretting oh father that they have destroyed what they have, you have given them oh father lord i pray that your mercy will be with them your grace will be with them that you will you will draw them close to you with your love oh father and restore to them lord what they have lost that you will bring healing and restoration and that they that them also enjoy your life and abundance of oh father lord in every way possible of oh father for your glory build this up give us an hunger and thirst lord after you after your righteousness after your presence of oh father that we want you lord more in our lives of oh father that we will enjoy you of a people lord who will worship you lord of people who will be worshiping all the time lord in our lives that who will delight in your presence of oh father give us your grace and mercy of oh father and thank you for this time and thank you for your word of oh father that encourages us dear lord we love you we give you all glory in jesus precious name we pray amen